This is a quote that I uh, gave you back at the beginning of our angels uh, discussion. I want to go back and revisit it. It's from John White. He says, you have established a new relationship with the powers of darkness. Now he's talking to a, a new believer in this quote. Whatever you were before you were a Christian, you are now a sworn foe of the legions of hell. Have no delusions about their reality or their hostility. Most Christians, as I've already said to you, don't seem to understand that. Most Christians are what I would call recreational Christians. It's, it's uh, cool to be a Christian or it's in to be a Christian in their circles. That is quickly changing. I remember when politicians would make a big deal out of the fact that they're a Christian. Uh, now, not so much. Uh, and I fear that we're heading into a time in America where it may not be so popular to be a believer. But it has never been in the spiritual realm because it is a, it is a war. Most Christians don't get that. So Sunday for them is going to church rather than being the church. They attend church. I mean, even our, even our verbiage uh, gives us away. We'll say, well, let's go to church. Well, how do you go to something that you are? Well, that's only if it's recreational, if it's more like a club. And I realize that most of us don't really think the church is a club. But unfortunately, in the semantics that we use, it, it very often, I think, permeates and affects the way we think. And then obviously, as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. So ultimately, it, it affects the way we live. And so we don't really get the fact that we really are in a war here and that we need to keep the posture of a soldier. This is why Paul so often uses the, the battlefield uh, uh, terminology. It's why in Ephesians 6, he says we have to put on the armor of God. Why he tells Timothy, fight the good fight as a good soldier. Because we are on a battlefield. Uh, we're not on a playground. Uh, we're on a battlefield. As I've often said, the old ship of Zion is not a cruise ship. It's a battleship. But we don't, most of us get that. So we live recreational Christianity, and if it feels good, well, then we'll do it. If it becomes painful, we won't, and, and that's what's happening in America today. And I think that's part of the decline in the church overall, and many of the churches that shut down because of COVID for any length of time are not seeing their members coming back now that they're trying to reopen the doors and trying to get their folks to come back. The church where my brothers attend in Fort Smith is running about one-fifth of what they were before COVID became the, uh, the catchphrase of, of 2020. And they're not sure that they'll ever come back. It's become too convenient to stay at home uh, watching your PJs. And, and I get that. Sometimes when you're ill or whatever, you're traveling. That's a great convenience. And we are always honored to have people who join us online. We're delighted that people are watching online. Sometimes folks uh, have an illness that keeps them from being here or, like I say, business or they're traveling. And so Internet is wonderful. But there is no substitution for being a functional part of the body of Christ. There just is no substitution for that. Christianity was not intended to be long-distance Christianity. We don't call the church collect, right? We don't do that. Now, many of you don't remember what that is, but I remember. I remember. Do you remember party lines when you'd stand around waiting on the blabbermouth to shut up so you could take care of your important business? Because there certainly isn't, obviously. I mean, I remember we, we lived uh, uh, in Spiro, Oklahoma. And we were on a party line. 
And if you were unfortunate enough to get on a party line where people did a lot of talking, you very seldom could make a phone call. It was, it was terrible. So, you know, we, we just, long-distance Christianity is not what the Bible prescribes. This is why in Hebrews 10, 25, we're, we're, we're reminded, do not forsake the assembling of the believers together. And he even says, do it more often as you see the end approaching. Well, obviously, we're closer to the end than when I believe Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. So, all the more church attendance, but not church attendance. See, we, we, our words give us away. It's not attending something like a football game or a Kiwanis club meeting. This is who we're supposed to be, and we're supposed to be a part of the body. So it is, it is a battlefield. And then C.S. Lewis, in his very famous uh, work called the Screwtape Letters, which is the discussion among the demons as to how they're going to attack the church and Christians, uh, says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. Now, what he's talking about there primarily is demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. It's just, you know, all hocus pocus and uh, cartoons and that kind of stuff, myth. The other is to, be uh, to, to believe, it should just say believe, not believer, and to feel an unhealthy interest in them, which is, of course, the other uh, side of, of the spectrum. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and, and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. So what we typically have is either people that go whole hog and all they do is there's a demon everywhere. You probably know some people like that or have known people like that. There's a demon in this. There's a demon in that. Uh, the devil gave me a flat tire. The devil broke my washing machine. Uh, the devil did this. The devil did... No, basically, you got a flat tire because you ran over a nail or a screw. I mean, that's just how that kind of works. And if the washing machine is 10 or 15 or 20 years old, it probably just wore out, you know. But these people are always looking for demons, are always casting out demons. I, I've been around people like that. Now, at the same time, there are those who just act like they don't even exist. E even if they don't say they don't believe that, that demons and the devil aren't real, they kind of act like they aren't. And they walk around on a battlefield daydreaming and, of course... Uh, soldiers who walk around on a battlefield daydreaming typically become casualties. That's, that's what ends up happening. And so many Christians uh, bite the dust because they just don't realize uh, the severity of what we're involved in. So C.S. Lewis is right. We have to guard against uh, both extremes. Now, just to kind of whet your appetite as to how the Bible is so forthright about the presence or the, the existence of demons, look at Matthew 10.1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits. Now, that's just another way of saying demon. We'll see that later. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus, without any uh, apology at all, says, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, speaking, of course, of the judgment, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He doesn't use the word demon. He uses the word angelos, but they were angels. They're just fallen angels now. But notice, no, no pretense, no apology for talking about the literalness of hell or the literalness of the devil or demons. It's all just, just like we would talk about the weather or, or a, a, you know, a, a football score or whatever. Uh, Jesus is just point blank talking as if they are real because, of course, they are. 
And then in Luke eleven twenty four, Jesus, in, in again talking about demonic activity, says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest. Now, that's not the whole passage of Scripture. But here Jesus is talking about how demon spirits, here he calls them an unclean spirit, can possess an individual. Well, once again, no apology, no, well, you know, just imagine if. No, he talks about it point blank as if it is real because it is. So as we approach this subject then, we have to use the same reality approach that Jesus did when he was on the earth. The very same reality approach that not only the Old but the New Testament uh, use in talking about these great spirits that are our enemies because having come off of our angel study, we know that there's an innumerable number of angels. Now, not infinite, innumerable to us. Just as I've often said, like the stars are innumerable to us. But there's a finite number of stars and God knows every one. The grains of sand on planet earth. Innumerable to me, but not infinite. There, there's an end to the number of grains of sand. So knowing that the angels number in the innumerable category, then as we've already talked about and you already know, one third of those angels follow Satan in his rebellion and become these unclean spirits, these evil spirits, these demons that we're going to be talking about. That would lead us to believe that there's a large number of them. We're up against a formidable enemy and we best understand that. Now that's why, as I was mentioning a while ago, in the sixth chapter of the letter to the Christians at Ephesus, Paul writes a very familiar passage of scripture. We have all read this passage or heard it taught or preached multiple times if we've been a Christian for any length of time. But listen to it from the perspective of reality as though this really is real and it's not just philosophical or theological, as though those things aren't real. But we we sometimes read it like that. Listen to what he says. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Unfortunately, most Baptist churches, that's where their fight is limited. They just fight flesh and blood, fight each other. And notice Paul says that's not the enemy. The enemy is not other people. Ultimately, what is going on in America, our enemy is not really the left. It's the spirit's and the philosophy that drive them, that is really the enemy. As much as I don't necessarily have great affection for Nancy Pelosi, she's really not the enemy. Now, she has lended herself to be used by the enemy in a significant way. But ultimately, flesh and blood is not the fight. So if if just Baptist church members could figure that part out, if they didn't read any more of this passage of Scripture and just got that part, Be miles ahead. We wouldn't fight each other. But against, he says, since it's not against flesh and blood, what what is our fight? Uh, What is our, our wrestling match? Where is the war? Where is the battlefield? Well, he says it's against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Now, obviously, you can put some people kind of in those categories, but it appears to me that what Paul is really focusing on are the demons. He's really focusing on the different levels of demonic uh, uh, activity and the, the different ranks of demons, and he says, that's who we're really up against. And maybe we've never really felt 
uh, demonic oppression, or we've never really thought that the demons were working against us, that's just simply a mistake on our part. Because we really are up against these kinds of wicked, wicked spirits. Now, just as we were enthralled when we read about the ministry of angels and their great power and the fact that they are with us at the moment we die and literally usher us into the presence of God and how at least one angel is assigned to us at birth and accompanies us through life, I believe the Bible teaches that. Uh, Maybe based upon our willingness to engage in the fight, we may have more than one angel who is accompanying us. All these things that we saw about angels and all their great ability and strength, well, don't forget that the demons had those same characteristics before they chose to follow Lucifer, before they were expelled from heaven. And there's nothing in Scripture that tells us that they lost any of that power. Nothing in Scripture tells us that they lost any of the knowledge. Can you just imagine what the angels know? I mean, they're privy to the counsels of the Godhead in such a literal way that they receive commands from the Lord to go and do His work and His kingdom plan and strategy. Well, the demons at one time were getting the same information. Do you think they've forgotten it? Do you think they don't understand how we're put together and don't understand the weaknesses, the vulnerabilities of a human? Even though we're made in God's image, they know the weaknesses. I mean, look at how the devil was able to infiltrate Eden when they didn't have a sin nature. And they still fell to the temptation. We have a sin nature now if we're redeemed in Christ That that nature has been lifted from us, but we're still fighting with the flesh. And that really won't come to an end until the third installment of salvation called glorification. And we think that we can hold up. Or we, we walk through life nonchalantly as if we're not in a serious struggle here. And then, of course, he ends the passage in verse 13 by saying, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now, I'm no special person. I'm no special Christian. Uh, I'm no more important to the kingdom than anyone else. But I can tell you from attempts that we have made in ministry, we have experienced things that are just beyond explanation. Weird things, crazy things. If they just happened every now and then, I'd write them off to just the fallen world. And probably some of those things that we've experienced may be just the fallen world, but they're too consistent and repetitive for me not to spot the enemy. You cannot believe the stuff that happens to us when we travel to do the black robe presentation. I've never in my life done anything that seems to face more resistance than that other than just short of preaching and trying to share the gospel itself. Of course, the gospel is beyond John 3.16, as we all know, so I consider the black robe message to be a part of the gospel. But you cannot believe the stuff that we face, and there's no explanation for it. I mean, God has blessed us. Uh, a foundation down in Texas a few years ago gave the ministry that we call the black robe, or BRR, a... a uh, uh, 
a healthy grant and we were able to do things like put together that museum and they bought that van and that trailer for us and all these different kinds of things. So we've been blessed with really good equipment. And yet that stuff just comes apart. I mean, it's just the craziest thing I've ever witnessed in my life, ever. I've never witnessed anything like it. And anymore, when we load up to go somewhere, it's not if something will happen. We wonder what it will be this time. And it's not like we have, uh, uh, you know, just a negative attitude and we've got a defeatist attitude and we're just, we're, I'm just telling you, it is nuts what happens. And so it has made me very much more aware of the actual battle that we're fighting and how the devil really is the prince of the power of the air. I mean, Dan can tell you, he's been involved in it. He knows something that will be working perfectly fine in five minutes, we'll just have a total meltdown right when it's time to start. All the testing, everything's great, everything's ready to go. Okay, now we're ready. And Dan, you've seen it, haven't you? And all of a sudden, we hit the lights and boom. I mean, just, it just, it's the nuttiest thing you'll ever see in your life. And so finally, I've, I've stopped being so frustrated about it until it happens, of course. <laughs> you get really frustrated. But you just begin to realize, hey, this is just a small piece. And this is probably the least serious part of the fight. So this is, this is what we're up against. And that's why it is so important that we understand. So let's begin with kind of a definition of who these demons are. There's a few blanks there on your outline that you can fill out. Maybe it kind of help you to, to retain some of the information. Most of this you probably know. But I think it's important to cover it. Demons are spirit beings It's important. Spirit beings. They're not a thought. They're not an ism. They're not a power. They have power. Uh, They use thoughts. They involve themselves in isms. But they are spirit beings. As much as the holy angels are, so are the demons who joined Satan's rebellion, were cast from heaven along with him, and are his subjects and helpers in his program to oppose God and his people. Sometimes I don't think that we take that all in. Oppose God and his people. Oppose. They are in constant opposition. Constant opposition. Now expelled from heaven, they make their abode in the second heaven, which would... uh, be the, the universal heaven that we think of. First heaven, atmosphere. Second heaven, universe. Third heaven, where God's throne is. They make their abode in the second heaven. And because, of course, the earth is a part of the universe and appear, to, uh, uh, and appear free to roam over the universe, specifically the earth. And this is their domain. This is why Paul calls Satan in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, the God of this world. Now, when he says world, as I've mentioned before, it doesn't mean the planet. The Bible is specifically clear that God owns the planet. He owns the creation. The world that Paul is talking about is the world system on the planet. People. All of the isms, all of the powers, all of the struggle, all of the power moves that are made in Washington, D.C. That's where Satan is the god of this world. And he is pulling the strings, and it shouldn't surprise us when people who are unaware and uneducated fall for it. What amazes me is that some in government who ought to know better still fall for it. 
I mean, I have friends in D.C. who fall for it. I had friends in the state legislature when I was there serving who fell for it. They could never connect the dots. And they couldn't see that they were being manipulated by more than a lobbyist or some other outside interest, but that there was a much greater picture going on here. And they were being manipulated by the very powers of darkness, and they just could not get it. This is why I believe that typically legislatures and congresses go south so fast. First of all, there's a lot of people there that aren't Christians, so they're just sitting ducks. They have no defense whatsoever. In fact, they may not even have any kind of mental defense where they even think they're up against spirit beings and all that. So they don't even really get it. But then most Christians who go there, they're nominal. I mean, they're, they're, they're the, the, uh, the casual recreational Christian. I'm not saying they're not truly saved, but that's about all they have. They're not mature believers at all. And so they'll go into the legislature and they have all of these great ideas and these great plans. But Charlie, you've seen it. It's just like a a kind of a glaze goes over their eyes and, and it doesn't take very many months and they actually become someone else. I mean, I watched in my freshman class of 13, which was a fairly sizable freshman class uh, in the house, and I watched the individual members of my freshman class when I was in the legislature, and I was just simply blown away by how quickly they fell under the trance. It's almost like they're in a trance. It's just crazy. Uh, If you're familiar with... um, the Lord of the Rings movies and, and all that, if you, if you watch those. And I can't ever remember the names because all, they all sound alike to me, and I get them all messed up. But there is a king, and I believe he's, he's in Rohan. It, it's the horse uh, empire, whoever they are. And, and he's been under the spell of basically a sorcerer. And you remember his eyes are all glazed over and he just kind of, okay. And he's doing stuff that he wouldn't normally do. And once the fog is lifted, he comes back to himself. But as long as he is under the spell, he's doing all kinds of not only stupid, but diabolical things and destroying his kingdom. That's the kind of fight that we're up against. Most people don't get that, so they fall under the spell very quickly. So if you take Washington, where there's even more money and more power traded back and forth, the demon spirits can do more damage, and so they're more active there. But in a state, typically the state capital, where the the seat of government is, is where they can do the most damage in that state, so they're very active there. And then you go to the county. Well, where can they do the most damage in the county? Well, county seat government. And then if you go to a city, what do they want to do? They want to get the most godless or ignorant individuals on places like city council, school boards, and they do the dumbest stuff. And you often sit and wonder, how is that? This is how. They enter this arena and they don't realize that there are powers more evil than they can possibly imagine. And the stakes are much higher than what they think they are. Merrill Unger is considered to be one of the great theologians uh, from past years. And I want you to listen to what he says about the history of our understanding 
of these individuals that we call demons. He says, The history of various religions from the earliest times shows belief in Satan and demons to be universal. Spells, incantations, magical texts, exorcisms, and various forms of uh, demonological uh, phenomena abound in archaeological discoveries from Samaria and Babylon, Egyptian, Assyrian, Chaldean, Greek, and Roman antiquity. They are rich in demonic phenomena. The deities worshipped were invisible demons represented typically by idols and images. Now you'd say, well, then we're okay because we don't have that here. Oh, really? They just look different. Let me tell you, and I, I had a meeting with some folks this week talking about this. There is something that we Christians have to guard against in idolatry. And that is almost worshiping America and American heritage. I encounter lots of Christians that I'm not so sure that they aren't far more passionate about America and our history and our legacy than they are the kingdom of God and the Lord and their own walk with Christ. Guys, God was at work long before America ever came to be. And unless He returns, He'll be at work long after we have gone into the dustbin of history and other civilizations. God does not need America America needs God. But we need to guard ourselves. That can become an idol. There's nothing wrong with being patriotic. I'm as patriotic as as you can probably be, although that's becoming a little tainted with me because of what America has actually become. But uh, it's real easy to fall into that. And we talk about our founding and, and the history and the legacy. And you know that I'm all about that. But I encounter a lot of Christians that they can get more amped up about that than they can how they can use that to advance the kingdom. And that's a serious problem. That's an idol, by the way. So the demons, they'll just change shapes of the idols. They don't care what the idol looks like or what it's made of. The idol can actually be a philosophy. doesn't matter to them. Just as long as you're more passionate about that, whatever that is, than God... That's fine with them. If it's your career, great. They'll help you be more passionate about your career. I cannot tell you the times over the years where I've had people literally say to me, you know, I would love to serve the Lord more, be more involved in my church, but I can't because of, and they start listing the reasons why they can't. Typically, it's either careers or hobbies. Now, I realize that sometimes a job will put constraints upon us that we have to somehow work around. I get that. But I'm telling you, if your career keeps you from being faithful to God, you need to switch careers. If your hobbies keep you from being faithful to God, or, or, or my hobbies keep me from being faithful to God, I need to ditch the hobbies. Those are really idols. So when he's talking here about the idols, let's don't excuse ourselves and think, oh, well, I don't have a Buddha, and I don't have that. You don't have to have a Buddha to have an idol. He says, the deities worshipped were invisible demons represented by material idols and images. To an amazing degree, the history of religion is an account of demon-controlled religion. Catch that. Demon-controlled religion. You're telling me that Christianity is immune from that? Look at what is happening in the Southern Baptist Convention right now. 
if you follow that at all. The kind of compromise that's going on there. Look at what has happened in the other mainline denominations that are now so liberal. They're really almost of no effect for God or worth to God's people. You don't think that we have demon-controlled religion in America? I roomed with a young man when we went, when Pam and I finally went to a four-year school. I roomed with a young guy from Little Rock, Arkansas. He grew up in a Methodist church. Typically, anymore, when you say Methodist, it means liberal left-leaning. I apologize if that offends, but it's true. He had never heard the plan of salvation, ever. Now, here he's rooming with a Baptist preacher. He lasted two weeks. <laughs> and he became a believer. Became a believer. Started following wherever, wherever I would go and preach on the weekends. He'd come home with me and go to these little places where I would preach. Those little country churches, little storefront churches and all that kind of thing. And we were at a church one night and they were taking prayer requests. And this lady stood up and said, pray for my son, he's lost. And of course everybody said, okay, we will. And after the service, Mark said, that must be the meanest bunch of people I've ever been to church with in my life. I said, what are you talking about? He said, that lady stood up and said her son was lost. And not one person said, well, let's put together a team and go out and see if we can find him. And he said, that's got to be the meanest bunch of people I've ever seen in my life. So I had to explain to him what lost meant. Now here was the real kicker for Mark. Just as soon as he came to Christ, he went home and told his Methodist mother she was going to hell. And that didn't work out so good, I'm telling you, for him. But see, he went to church all of his life. So one Sunday, I went home with him. And I went to their church. That was the most pathetic thing I'd ever seen in my life. Oh, the guy was brilliant. The church was very nice. The people were sophisticated. But I listened to him just quote philosophers and do all this kind of stuff. Now, there's nothing wrong with quoting when that quote can help you to make a point. But this guy talked around everything, and then he dismissed. And I thought, my gosh, I've heard more gospel in a political speech than I've heard in this sermon. No wonder these people are lost. But they think they're saved. That's demon-controlled religion. Particularly, he says, in its clash with the Hebrew faith and later Christianity. And then a different book, he says this, that the Shadim, which is one of the words that we'll see is used in the Old Testament for demons, and there's a, a, a couple of biblical references where that word is used, were real demons and not mere idols is proved by the Septuagint translation of the term daimonia. Now remember, the Septuagint is simply the Greek version of the Old Testament. For most of us, English is pretty much all we read, so that's no big deal to us. But the Old Testament written in Hebrew and the common language of the New Testament era was Greek. And so many uh, benefited from a Greek uh, version of the Old Testament translated from Hebrew to Greek. So he says in the Septuagint translation of the, of the term daimonia, which is what English is translated demons, the Jews regarded idols as demons who allowed themselves to be worshipped by men. And he gives a number of references there, some of them to Jewish works. It seems certain, moreover, that the uh, Syrium, which we'll come across that name later, were also demonic conceptions. So the point that Unger is simply making here is that from the earliest history of man, man has known of and been controlled by, possessed by, mesmerized by demons.
Now that would make sense, of course, because in their original rebellion, they fell with Satan. And we would assume that that was before man was created because Adam and Eve had not been in the garden very long when, of course, Satan is able to possess the body of the serpent who yields himself up to the devil and speaks to Eve, which tells me that the serpent, by his judgment, went through a lot of changes because Eve was not shocked by a serpent speaking to her. If serpents don't speak, you ought to be more concerned about a serpent talking to you than you are what he's saying to you, right? Okay, so then, how do we know that they're real? Well, let's go through and look at some proofs here very quickly. Number one, Jesus clearly recognized the existence of demons. There's no question about it. Uh, There's no way that I can give all the references, but as you read through the gospel accounts, it's almost as if the demons were coming out of the closets. Now, I think that's because they were. And we'll talk about why uh, later in this series. In fact, during his earthly ministry, he had many run-ins with them constantly. There was always someone coming up to him possessed of a demon, either the demon speaking through that person to Jesus or someone who was overwhelmed with what demons can do to a physical body, needing help from demonic oppression. Uh, He faced down the devil himself, who is, of course, the head demon, all of this. So, so Jesus clearly recognized the existence of demons. He recognized Satan as the ruler of a host of demons. There's the scriptural reference to that. A large part of his ministry, as I said, involved casting out demons from those possessed. Uh, you'd you'd have to fill up the sheet of paper with all the the biblical references. So I gave you three of those. Some of them you're very familiar with. He, meaning Jesus, confirmed the fate of demons to be eternity in the lake of fire. That's Matthew 25, 41. Why would he say that if the demons are just kind of a thought or just kind of an invisible power? No, they're entities. They're spirit beings. And we're up against them. Just as much as we have... The, the unfallen angels, the holy angels with us, we have these demons against us every day, 24-7. Jesus spoke of their existence to his disciples. I think I read one of those passages uh, as we began the, the lesson. He gave his disciples power to cast out demons. He viewed his victory over Satan to also include victory over the demons. And you'll find that in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. So Jesus knew that when he was fighting the fight, he wasn't just fighting the devil. Now, here's something that I've thought of before. I may have said it here, so, you know, sometimes I forget things that I've said or illustrations that I use. But we often think of the cross, right? And the hours before the cross, the beatings... The, the fact that Isaiah in Isaiah 52 says that by the time they were through beating and thrashing Jesus, he didn't look like a human. He, he probably looked more like a side of beef. He was so ripped up and, and bleeding profusely. And then after they're through with all of that, one of the things they had done is plucked out his beard. Now, I've never been able to grow a beard because I can't stand it. It just itches so bad. I just can't live with it. But I can't imagine how painful that would be. So what I would suggest that you do is after class, walk over to Charlie and grab a hold of his beard and see how much of it you can yank out. 
And I think you'll know. I mean, they, they plucked out his beard. Then they, they, they jammed these, these big long thorns, this crown that they had fashioned over in, and they digs down into his scalp. All of that. And then they drive the nails through the, the upper part of the hand and they would sever those nerves and the thumb would constrict and, and he would suffocate on the cross. It's not that he would bleed out on the cross. He would suffocate. That's why they broke the legs so they would die quickly so they would suffocate. All of that's going on and that's got to be beyond description of the agony but you know I've often thought that was nothing compared to two other things that we typically don't think of the guilt of the entire human race poured upon him Isaiah says the Lord meaning God the Father laid on him the iniquity of us all have you ever felt guilty and you were so, you're so guilty you felt sick? Have you ever known that you were condemned of something? You were wrong and there was no defense? All of that for the whole world was poured on him. That's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus had never been separated from the Godhead, ever, till then. Now, I don't know the sinking feeling that a person will feel when they hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you at the judgment. But that's what Jesus felt right then. When he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Father, God the Spirit, were condemning Jesus for sin. Not his own. So just imagine if you've ever done this how you would feel if you stood at the judgment and you heard the words depart from me I never knew you that we can only imagine it he felt it that's why he cries that out but there's one other thing that we typically don't think about where do you think all the demons that exist were when all of that was going on you think they were over in Hawaii enjoying the beaches do you think they were in the Alps, snow skiing? You just couldn't see their skis, but, you know, snow skiing. You think they were mountain climbing? You think they're over on Mars checking that out? No. See, I personally believe that every demon that exists, and Satan himself, were just outside the walls of Jerusalem. Can you imagine the horde of demons that the disciples couldn't see, the Romans couldn't see, they couldn't hear. Jesus could. And he had created them. Scripture says there's nothing that's been created that he did not create. And he had cast them out of heaven for their rebellion. Can you just imagine what they had to say to him now that they believe they have him where they want him? Have you ever taunted somebody? Have you ever been taunted? It's one of the most empty feelings you can possibly have, especially when the victor is taunting you, the loser. Can you imagine the horrible, vicious, vile? I've had some pretty vile, vicious things said about me on Facebook. So much so that sometimes my friends who help to monitor that for me say, hey, you don't want to look at that today. Do I have your permission to go through and block some of that? Just a few weeks ago when I made that post that I talked about last Sunday or the Sunday before, you cannot believe the vile 
thing. It's, it's, it's one thing for somebody to say, you know, I don't agree with you. Okay, great, fine. You want to debate that? We can talk about it. No, no, no. It's vile. Can you imagine how much more vile every demon that exists could be? They're all circling the cross. See, we think that Jesus is just hanging there with a couple of thieves on either side of him and some of the disciples that haven't fled yet hanging around the foot or off in the distance. Friend, I'm telling you, every demon that exists was right there. Right there. So when he viewed his victory over Satan as also being over the demons, maybe this little exercise will help you to realize what that actually means. I can't fathom it because I can't feel it. I've never experienced that. I've never experienced total abandonment from God. I don't know what that would feel like. I can only imagine. I've never had two or three demons on me that I knew of. I may have, but I didn't feel it as much. But can you imagine having everyone that exists on you? Screaming at you? Insulting you? Taunting you? Just imagine. That thief on the cross that said, Hey, look, if you're the Lord, why don't you free yourself and the both of us too? That was nothing compared to what those demons were saying. I mean, if I was a demon, I'd have been there. If you were a demon, well, some of you are. It, it, you know, if, if, if I'm not going to name names. If you were a demon, where would you have been? You'd have been there, wouldn't you? Trying to somehow talk him out of it. So, he viewed his victory over Satan as also being victory over the demons. Now, the scriptures establish the existence of demons. It's not just Jesus, it's the scriptures. There are over 100 references to demons in the Bible, most of them admittedly in the New Testament, primarily because many of the Old Testament references are references to idols. And so we kind of miss those as being references to demons. All of the writers, not necessarily all of the books they wrote, but all of the writers of the New Testament mention demons. Now, the reason why that piece of information is important is because if Jesus took the time to verify their existence and faced them down, if the Bible is filled both in the New and the Old Testament with references, and ultimately every writer of the New Testament mentions demons, what message is that, or should that send us? It's pretty important to know what then the Bible has to say about demons and to understand what we're up against. Now, if it stopped right here, we'd be pretty depressed. <laughs> Remember, we did the good angels first. So fall back on that when you need to, okay? But this is, this is what we're up against. Now, what we'll do is we'll pick up there next week. We'll look at the names that are given in Scripture. And then we'll look that there are at least two classes of demons. Now, there's probably many levels in their ranks, but there are two classes, those that are free and those that are confined. And we'll talk about that next week, okay? So let's stop right there. Thank you for your patience. I hope that this was a good start to this lesson. We'll pick up right there next week. Hang on to your outline, and we'll uh, take a little break, and we'll have our worship service. All right? You're dismissed.